0: Triple Play Fantasy's football show with D Mindy, Brastodamas, Doc, and Johnny Foosball starts now.
1: We welcome in a man who knows the game of football like it's the back of his hand. A man who has worked with six different franchises. This man knew how to instruct the youth. And it's not just because he has a physical, physical education degree. This man worked for what he wanted, and that was to be on the football field. A girl dad who doesn't have the same day-to-day schedule. Some days he's working with his tequila brand. Other days he's at Fox Studios. Most days he's at the gym. Well, today we're blessed to have his presence. We welcome in offensive guru, Hugh Jackson. What's going on, man? Hey, not much. Thanks for the introduction. Glad to be here. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you on. Hopefully, it didn't creep you out too much with the little background <laughs> research that we did. I didn't know you had a tequila. Absolutely,
0: I do. Grand Leenda. We have all four uh, spirits, uh, Blanco, Silver, uh, Resposado, Anejo, and it's organic. 100% USDA
2: organic. Oh, there you go.
1: That's all right, sin-
2: That makes me feel better about myself. There we go. <laughs> yeah, so,
1: so, since we're plugging in the advertisement here, where can we find your tequila brand? Well, we're uh, obviously based in California, but our brand, I mean, comes out of Jalisco, uh,
0: Mexico. Uh, But we're in Florida, uh, Las Vegas, Hawaii, Texas. We're going to start an online campaign here in about a week uh, where we'll be in 38 different states. So we're really fired up about scaling our brand.
1: Oh, that's awesome to hear. If you expand to Maryland, you have some customers here. Absolutely. We plan on Okay. That's awesome. I'm, I know what I'm getting my next tequila brand for. But Hugh, what I'd like to do is start out with the early life, a little before you were in the professionals. You were raised in LA to parents who were extremely hard workers. And I think that can do a lot to help shape a man and a player for what they become. You didn't have the easiest childhood and path to football. And I, th- I think I speak for all of us here when we respect the man that you are and the ability that you had to turn pain into motivation. And I know Brad had a question about your childhood that he wanted to get into. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, Coach, uh, you grew up in South Central LA in the 70s and 80s, and you had two hardworking parents that were influential in your life. My background is in economics, so I'm curious, during a time when manufacturing jobs were starting to disappear or become lower paid, did you have any of that economic anxiety affect your family at all, or, or feel any pressure in that arena?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you live in inner city LA, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Fifty Second and Hoover, uh, right in the part of the uh, of the Crips, yeah, yeah, uh, it was rough. You know, my mom uh, was a uh, cook at a school. My dad worked at Weber Aircraft where he painted planes, and I was very proud of him. But at the same time, we were living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, it was rough you know and we had my uncles and aunties living with us because my mother's uh, mother passed so it was tough growing up but uh that's that's all part of the process
3: did it affect any of the decisions you made like on a day-to-day basis as like a, a teenager when you start to you start to think oh do i need to start getting some money or or should i you know pursue my dreams like how did that how did that shape your your
0: decisions you know, Brad, what really happened for me was um, sports became my all-consuming passion. And when you are when you become a sports guy, as you know, and you grew up in those kind of environments, there's a group of people that try to keep you away from some of the bad stuff. You know, they try to push you and say, hey, you got a chance to make it. Uh, you go make it. We're still going to do what we do. It's here. Uh, And obviously, you can make a right turn or you can make a left turn. And uh, Mm -hmm. I always try to make the right turn as often as I could.
1: Yeah, and it seems like sports were that right turn for you because I want to dive into the early part of your athletics career. Way before you were an NFL coach, you were a multi-sport athlete in high school playing quarterback and lettering and basketball at Dorsey High School. You played at the collegiate level as well, playing for Glendale Community College and ultimately transferring to Pacific where you threw for 2,544 yards and threw 19 touchdowns, adding 919 rushing yards. Got to put that in because you're a dual threat quarterback. You would stay at Pacific where you would get a graduate assistant position serving as the running back, wide receiver, and special teams coach during your three years there. You would have a few other stops before making it to the NFL, being a coach at Cal State Fullerton, Arizona State, California, and USC. But before you landed your first full-time job in the NFL, you had three NFL summer coaching internships, 1990 with the Rams, 1992 with the Phoenix Cardinals, and 1995 with the Washington football team. How was the process of getting an internship back in the day? I imagine it's very different than the path that people have today.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think at that time, it was uh, Bill Walsh's uh, recommendation that NFL teams do a better job of helping minority coaches. Um, I thought it was a little bit easier at that time to uh, get those opportunities. Obviously, everybody was trying. Um, all I did was motivate me more because when I saw the coaches that were coaching in the National Football League, I thought I could compete with them. Um, the greatest thing for me is uh, being involved in one of those, and John Robinson was the head coach of the Rams. And I eventually went back to USC. Eventually, hired me to USC. Uh, so you build relationships, and there was a lot of relationship building that was built during that time. But it was a lot of fun, and obviously, it just really motivated me uh, to to know that I could coach in the pros.
1: Yeah, and I know that had that Brad had a question about your career trajectory. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, you know, I think it's fascinating that we're at a point where the NFL is essentially you know, bribing franchises to hire minority coaches with their draft pick incentive. And the Rooney rule might get you an interview, but the conversion rate is really low. My question to you is kind of like, how in the world did you get to be viewed on merit? Cause it almost seems like early in your coaching career, you kind of had constant success and then that led to promotions for you. Or was there much more resistance than I'm acknowledging?
0: Oh, no, I think you, you saw it right. I mean, you earn what you get, you know, and I think, I was producing, and it led to more opportunities. And I knew and understood uh, that if I wanted to ever be a head coach, I needed to coach the quarterback. I needed to be a primary play caller. Um, it's hard in National Football League as a minority. You know, in this, the 100-year history of the league this past year, there's only been 19 minority head coaches in the history of the league. So that's got to tell you something just right there. And the fact that I'm sitting at home uh, heading into my third year after being voted the offensive coach of the year in 2015, that's got to tell you something, too. So uh, it's hard. But And I think the hard part for minority coaches is once you ascend, you become a coordinator, you become a head coach. Where do you go from there? You know, it's not mm-hmm. like we get jobs right away again. You know, they kind of leave us sitting on the sidelines, so they decide it's OK to come back. And that's disappointing. Uh, But that's what the process has been. But you said it. I thought those jobs that I uh, had, I earned them, uh, had success. And um, sometimes people forget that you know how to coach football.
1: (laughs) You're right. And the success and your resume spoke for itself as you got your first full-time job with the Washington organization. In the 2001-2002 season, serving as the running backs coach. And under your tutelage, Stephen Davis would rush for 1,432 yards a record for the team at that time. You were eventually promoted to offensive coordinator in 2003, handling the team's offensive play calling. And your next stop in the NFL would be your first stint with the Bengals. And I know there's a couple questions Kevin wants to ask you about your time there.
2: So coach, as a a high school coach uh, here in California, and I grew up in that same time that you were at the Bengals, uh, you know, I really enjoyed watching you coach and watching those teams play. And so with your coaching experience, one thing I had a question about is you coach a bunch of athletes throughout your time. Is there any that stood out to you in terms of work ethic or competitiveness? We always talk about intangibles when I coach. Are there guys that you just remember, man, they just came to work every day and just worked their ass off? Oh, absolutely.
0: I, I coached some tremendous players in Cincinnati. And obviously one name that comes to mind is Chad Johnson, you know, he yeah. He was a phenomenal player. He was a phenomenal practice player. Uh, he loved the game. He still has a lot of energy today. loving to death. Uh, T.J. Guzmanzada, yeah. Carson Palmer, Andrew Whitworth, uh, Willie Anderson. I mean, I was around some really, really good players in my career there in
2: Cincinnati, and that made it special. Anytime you have good players, you
0: can become a really good coach.
2: Well, I'm glad you mentioned Ocho Cinco and my guy Chad Johnson because we had a lot of guys that loved him on my football team growing up. And I know what it's like to coach unique athletes, and he's definitely unique. You know, is there a story out there with him, or do you think he's like a Hall of Fame player? Do you think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely, I do. Um,
0: Chad can do things that a lot of people couldn't do. Yeah. And I think if people really go back and take out the last year and a half of his career, you would see that he's very worthy. You know, for a guy to lead the league in receiving, uh, to do everything he did in Cincinnati, he brought Cincinnati football back. He was a huge part of that. Um,
1: I think he definitely is in the conversation and should garner an opportunity in the future. Yeah, and you know, you did your job as well in Cincinnati as Ocho Cinco and T.J. Hushmanzada became the first Bengals wide receiver duo to each eclipse one thousand receiving yards in a season. And Chad had 1,000-plus yards every year you were there. So some credit to you as well. You had a couple short stints with the Falcons as an offensive coordinator and with the Ravens as a quarterback's coach before landing in Oakland. And you were the offensive coordinator your first year, leading an improved offense that finished 6th in the NFL in scoring, which was 25.6 points per game, that more than doubled their point total from the year before. You would replace Tom Cob- Tom Cable Sorry, after that season. And you'd have your first head coaching job well-deserved. And I know our Raiders fan, John, wants to ask a question about that season.
4: I mean, first off, I do want to say the offense was dynamic and extremely exciting. Darren McFadden was out there having a career year. Um, and you did win, in my opinion, one of the bigger games in Raiders history uh, immediately after Al Davis had passed away. Oh. Uh, Sort of what was that like? And did you know at the time when the play was going on, there were only 10 players on defense? (laughs) I I didn't
0: know. uh, (laughs) um, It was an unbelievable um, set of circumstances. First of all, to become the head coach of the Raiders, which was a a childhood uh, dream team of mine, Uh, having worked at the Coliseum, wearing those yellow jackets, the CSC jacket security watching Al Davis and his entourage walk out there and saying, boy, I'm going to work for this guy someday. And to have that happen, you know, I'm just, I'm I'm grateful and thankful. Uh, And when he passed, obviously, he was the guy that gave me my first opportunity that truly believed in me and gave me the keys to the organization. And we were winning, you know, we were doing some great things. And then we lost him. And he was a huge part of what we did uh, as a football team because Al was really involved in the defense. So... Made it tough. Um, that game in Houston was will always be memorable to me. I have a plaque from it. Obviously, we won the game. It was a tremendous football game. Last play of the game, get interception with ten guys on the field, and we always say we really had eleven because we really believe Al was out there somewhere. And um, again, it was a great time. It's a great opportunity for me. And again, I'm just thankful. That's one of and the best I,
4: stories I've heard. Yeah, and I did just want to say. Uh, John Gruden just this past year went seven and four and finished eight and eight. And he has about six years left on his contract. You don't have to comment on that. I'm just putting it out there.
1: (laughs) That's a real Raiders fan for you. I, uh, I don't want to dwell too much on your time there. I think they made the the wrong decision, but you would go back to Cincinnati, a place that felt to be a home for you. You would have your first professional experience on the defensive side of the ball, working as the assistant DB coach and special teams, and you would eventually work your way back up, uh, up to offensive coordinator. But, Coach, I got a question for you because you said your biggest regret was leaving Cincinnati during your second stint. The Bengals offered you the chance to succeed Marvin Lewis as head coach. At the time, he had been there 13 years, so it's not like he just arrived. And I know you said your friendship was more important than the job, but you were winning in Cincinnati and had been there already seven years. Did you take the Cleveland position because you were worried you might not receive another head coaching opportunity? Absolutely not. I mean, I had other opportunities. I could have went to the Giants,
0: and as you said, I could have stayed in Cincinnati. Um, I thought of what I said I meant. I mean, I think it's hard to be the coach in waiting to your best friend. I didn't want him looking over his shoulder. I didn't think he deserved that. He didn't deserve to go out that way. And those head coach in waiting situations don't really work out sometimes the way you think they do, especially when it's announced that way. And I just, I felt like I could go get my own, you know, and it was a team in the division. It was a division that I knew well. Um, It was going to be Cleveland when I first, before when I took the job, they had a really good offensive line, Alex Mack, Joe Thomas, um, Mitchell Swartz, all that, and then within the first month and a half of being there, I mean, they dismantled all that. So um, it wasn't the same team that I had, the best team I had in Cleveland, Besides the twenty eighteen team was the team as soon as I signed my contract because after the contract was signed, that team was
1: dismantled. Mm-hmm. yeah and and I know that you know Brad has a question about coaching because probably your experience is different than what we see on TV.
3: yeah, i so something I don't think that fans and media acknowledge enough is that the game is so esoteric that we don't actually know what we're watching. We just kind of enjoy it. So one of the reasons I assume that coaches get hired again after a rough 10 years is because management knows that there, there are so many moving parts that a win loss record really doesn't tell you enough. So can you describe some of the day to day responsibilities you had as a head coach that required, you know, all the hours you put in from 4am to midnight?
0: You know what? I won't even, I can't even begin to touch on that, but to <laughs> mentioned something about people not understanding. I, my challenge for people is to go back and look at that Cleveland Browns team of 2016 and 2017, there wasn't mm-hmm. very much talent there, you know, and so especially at key positions. And you look at the team today, that team is built to win.
2: Yeah.
0: And when you go look at those teams in 2016, 2017, they were not built to win. And I think players said it, um, people said it, but the expectation is you're supposed to win. That's what I think is wrong with with. Mm-hmm what happened in Cleveland. I think people got to understand what it was they were trying to do, and maybe I didn't know exactly what they were trying to do when it's all said and done. And I think uh, that's the hard part. But uh, as we continue to move forward, I wish them nothing but the best uh, because they're playing good football now, and it's what their fans deserve. But at the same time, I know what I lived through and what my coaching staff lived through and what the players lived through and what the fans lived through for two years. I didn't think that was fair.
3: Do you think yeah. every coach should have sort of the the team building the GM responsibilities or is there is there kind of benefit to, to delegating some of that away?
0: Oh, no, there's benefits. There's no doubt that there's benefits because it's just too many hats to wear. Mm-hmm. But you have to have somebody that has the same vision as you. You know, everything is always good until you add too many people into it, you know because um, they might see it differently than you do. So that's why you try to get a head coach and a GM who have the same vision, who can kind of work together um, in, in order to make it happen. I I do know that a head coach cannot win for the GM. The head coach got to win for himself. The GM has to try to help the head coach win, because he's got to give me what he needs in order for him to be successful. If somebody gives you – the same offensive talent I had when I was in Cincinnati in Cleveland and I didn't, couldn't do the job, then that's a different conversation. But I right. think, you know, Terrell Pryor was my best receiver. He was a receiver that had over a 1,000 yards. So uh, people just got go to go do the work, go do the digging, and I think they'll see that, wow, this was really different at the time than what it is today.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I don't want to talk ab- too much about your tenure there because I think, as you mentioned, the casual fans will look at the record we'll look at the record, but they'll ignore the dysfunction that had been with the organization well before your time. Those are my words, not yours. Mm-hmm. And anyone who has followed the NFL knew that they were tanking and had a depleted roster. And as you mentioned, Terrell Pryor was the number one receiver your first year there, and he was a converted quarterback to wide receiver. So, you know, unfortunately things didn't work out with you in Cleveland and you returned to, to what seemed to be your home in Cincinnati for the rest mm-hmm. of the year. But, Hugh, you had recently interviewed with the Steelers for their offensive coordinator position. Now, the team ultimately chose to promote Matt Canada. But I'm curious, did you choose to interview for that position because of the potential opening in that position? Or did you want to coach for every team in the AFC North or <laughs> kind of both? No, it was really about uh, the
0: position, the opportunity. I mean, it's still the Pittsburgh Steelers. And uh, that's where uh, he you know, put it this way, but that's where the winning rules started. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. if you really look at um, that part of it for me, because I, I was excited about that part of it a little bit. Uh, but if you look in the history of what they've done, I mean, hadn't been many men of color in coordinator positions in Pittsburgh. You know, so it's really interesting, you know, when you go back and think about it, because that's where the rules started. But Yeah. Uh, they do have a minority head coach and he's a very good coach. Nothing against him, but boy, you look and you go, How about the office coordinator the defense coordinator special teams? Well, that's that hadn't been the case. Yeah. Hey, look, what do you
3: make of kind of what you see in in Tampa with what Bruce Arians is doing and kind of I guess what you see with the the Lions now, I believe, with their new head coach, it's kind of like, you know, the new guys are starting to bring in more minority um, coordinators, do you think that's the path to see more minority coaches, or do you think it's it's still going to be kind of the same thing that that we're seeing today?
0: I think it's still going to be the same thing. I think you hit these uh, outlier situations where coaches do a little bit more, give a little bit more opportunity, but the history of the league says it's not going to change. You know, right. because it really hasn't. And like I said, it's been a hundred year history. I think people are a little bit more mindful of it. They think through it, but We've seen the same things happen. And I'm thankful that the Detroit Lions did what they did. I'm thankful that Bruce Aarons uh, made a huge decision because when you look at his staff, you go, well, that's not normal. You know, right. of you know, yeah. color who are leading everything. And when you look over at Pittsburgh, you say that is normal, you know, because you have a minority coach who has Caucasian leadership. So uh, somehow, some way, we got to get this thing fixed. I hope we can before the end of time. Uh, I just, uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not excited about what's on the other side of it just because what I, do you... I've been through it and I see it and I know, you know, what ownership feels and what they think. And uh, that's hard to uh, unsee.
3: What do you think we see first, a woman president or a woman head coach?
0: <laughs> you, probably see one. Both of those? <laughs> you probably will see them both. You know, uh, I, I truly believe that because you can see and nothing against the women. I'm very, excited about the opportunities they're getting, but they're moving up the chart faster than the minority coaches are getting hired, you know? So it's really interesting, but I think everybody's got to go back and really understand the beginning of the league when it started and understand that minorities were not seen as valuable to play or coach in the national football league. It took an injunction in order for the first player to play. It took forever for the first coach to get the opportunity but yet the league is 70% black. So what we're saying is you guys can play and make us money and we'll pay you, but we don't need you in leadership positions. And that's
1: what I think people have to understand. Wise words and real facts coming from Hugh Jackson. Now, Hugh, obviously most people know you for football, but you know, there is a man that is bigger than that game. And I know that John wants to talk to touch on your foundation.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, obviously it's such a great uh, goal, and I believe you won the 2019 Harvard Global Health Catalyst Mental Humanitarian Award, which uh, it must be despite being a big mouthful of big honor as well. Uh, so I was wondering if you could touch on your foundation a little bit and the, and the work you guys have been doing. Yeah, with the
0: Hugh Jackson Foundation, uh, we want to end human trafficking. Uh, we think it, it's just a terrible thing that goes on in our world and it's kind of not talked about enough. Uh, we're really trying to bring uh, ed- you know, knowledge of what it is uh, so everybody can understand it because it does not, um, you know, it's not one particular race that it deals. I mean, it's everywhere, and people need to really understand the signs of it. Uh, we have a residence that we partner with the Salvation Army in Cleveland where we house human trafficking victims. Um, we're trying to do our part. Obviously, we need to do more. Uh, but we truly want to end human trafficking. I've met a, uh, a man since I've been in uh, Florida helping at the House of Athletes, uh, Vitor Bellafort, the great uh, MMA fighter, and uh, he's in the fight as well. And so I just think the more people who understand what the position is, the more people who really want to do something about it, then we can change it.
1: That's very true. And, um, you know, that, that's great, great cause that you have. We're talking with Hugh Jackson, offensive guru. Hugh, we like to get our guests out of here with a little triple play rapid fire, some this or that question. You probably haven't been asked some before. You down? Let's go. All right. Better jersey, the Bengals orange or the Raiders silver and black?
2: The Raiders silver and black.
1: Yeah. I was not. Yeah, wow. That was quick. All right. Would you rather not be able to go to the gym for a week, or not go to your favorite burrito spot for a month? Not go to my favorite burrito spot. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the, the man's got to get a workout in. I have to. Best tequila that's not yours: Ornitos, Jose Cuervo, or eighteen hundred. They all suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, my replacement then. How many shots could you take in an hour? Of my tequila? Yeah. At least four. Okay, that you've got a good Ooh, tolerance. That's pretty good. I like that. I like that. That's more than I could take. <laughs> Would you rather be able to talk to your past self or your future self? My future self. Okay. All right. I like it. No regrets. You can only use one utensil the rest of your life. <laughs> Fork, spoon, or knife. What are you picking?
0: Knife. What? That is absurd. Expect- yeah, you got to explain this to us. Because I might have to chop some people up. Ah. <laughs> All right. able to fight. I need a knife. <laughs> yeah, but we're just figuring about eating and stuff like that. Yeah, I know I- you're talking about eating, but but sometimes when you're eating,
1: things happen.
4: That's, <laughs>
3: that, that's, that, that's that upbringing coming at <laughs> yes. you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All
1: right. Uh, you know, you're the first person we've asked that said oh. knife, so I respect the uniqueness of it. going to be
3: the last. <laughs>
1: Would you rather not be able to watch football for a year or have a flip phone the rest of your life? Flip phone. Okay. All right. He doesn't need the social media. I'm interested to hear your answer on this one. Would you rather get a coaching win against Baker Mayfield or Todd Haley? Both. Oh! (laughs) That's the loophole right there. Would you rather say everything that comes to your mind or never say anything ever again?
0: Say everything now that comes to my mind. I give there two you know. shits about
1: what it. <laughs> okay. Oh <God>. I <laughs> respect that. We got a couple more here. Assuming you're playing football, would you rather have to block James Harrison or run a slant across the middle against Ray Lewis? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a
0: good one. <laughs> Round them both. Uh, I don't want to get hit by Sugar Ray.
1: <laughs>
0: oh. That might be tough, but uh, I'd rather try to block him. He might run over the top of me, but I'm gonna get hit on the, in the other situation.
1: Okay, I like it. I mean, maybe you can hold your own against James Harrison. Who knows? I don't. I Last don't think... one. <laughs> I don't you've doubt in yourself. You've it's been not in the way room. Yeah, you've been in the yeah, way room. Coach. Say, you don't take a week off. I can. I'll I'll put a little bit of money on you against James Harrison at this point. <laughs> The last one, would you rather be able to play 10 different instruments or speak 10 different languages? Speak 10 different languages. Okay. Be able to influence more people. And you could cuss out some players, and they wouldn't know what you're saying to them. Absolutely. I like that.
3: (laughs) Hey, Coach, is there anything that we haven't asked you that we should have asked you?
0: No. I think you guys are very thorough. I appreciate uh, what you guys do. Obviously, you guys did your homework, and uh, it's exciting.
1: Well, we really appreciate that and we appreciate having you on Hugh. Um, it has been an honor to kind of dive into your not only your coaching career, but your upbringing because I don't think that you were ever just handed this opportunity, that you really worked for it. And if you want to see more of Hugh, you can follow him on Instagram at Hugh Jackson 5. I found a Twitter account. I don't know if this is yours. It only has 936 followers. It's yeah, I, Hugh Jack 10 Is that you?
0: That's me. I just, I'm not into all this. Uh, make, sure you have a, <laughs> make sure you have all these followers. You follow, you follow. You do, you do, you don't, you don't. I, I could care less.
1: Well, so the, the most recent tweet, though, was a retweet about crypto. And I was like, is that really Hugh Jackson? <laughs> is, is, is Hugh Jackson? That's, my, that's really my assistant. That's who takes it. <laughs> <the>, uh, <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, now I know that that's actually you, but Hugh, we appreciate you coming on for all the listeners. Make sure you stay tuned for some great guests and some great future episodes. Everybody stay safe and wear a mask.